Good morning, New Life. And as we heard earlier, today is Pentecost Sunday. So many scholars and historians consider this the birth of the New Testament church. So happy birthday, church. It's already been a great morning so far, and I trust God that it's going to get even better. I'm excited about this word today because I believe that God has something very important that he wants to say to us. But even more important, I believe there's something that God wants to do in us. We have many aspects to our identity as Christians. I liken it to a multifaceted diamond that when you turn it in the light, you see something different. All beautiful, all glorious, and all true. The Bible says we are new creations. We are sons and daughters of the Most High God. We are co-heirs with Christ. We are God's chosen ones. We are a royal priesthood. Today I want to talk to you about what it means to be a witness. Now Webster's defines uh, witness as a testimony of a fact or an event or one that gives evidence, specifically one who testifies in a, in a court tribunal. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about the concept of witness. It's a theme that runs throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And here are just a few examples. Um, in the first example is Genesis 31. This is where Jacob and Laban make a witness. It says, this heap is a witness and this pillar is a witness that I will not go past this heap to, to your side to harm you and that you will not go past this heap and pillar to my side to harm me. Uh, Exodus 20:16 at the giving of the Ten Commandments says, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Deuteronomy 19:15 says, Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. And then in the New Testament, in the book of John, talking about John the Baptist and John 1, it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. I've titled this message, Can I Get a Witness? Because first, it's a phrase that many of us in the church have heard over the years. And when we hear it, it's a, an encouraging way to participate with what God is doing. Now, I did some research on the phrase, Can I Get a Witness? for its original source. And the first uh, written account that we have of the phrase comes from the late 1800s in the writings about the African-American church from Nanny Helen Burroughs. Now, Burroughs was a native of uh, Virginia. She was a devout National Baptist and educator, and she was actually one of the early civil rights leaders. And her father happened to be a preacher. And if you've experienced uh, the, the, the time when it said, can I get a witness? It's a question in the call and response rhythm of preaching where the congregation is supposed to answer in the moment. It usually comes right after the preacher has shared a story or a scripture that resonates. And any preacher will tell you that in the give and take, there is an energy that helps fuel the anointing of God. So if you hear something that resonates with you today, go ahead and shout it out. <laughs> the other reason for the title today is that it's addressing a topic that seems to have fallen out of favor in recent years. I'm talking about step one of making disciples. I'm talking about evangelism. There's a lot of debate about the methods and the practice of evangelism? Should we still do big conferences? Should we go old school and go door to door? Should we go purely digital and just do everything on Facebook? And all these debates, the end result is actually no one's doing any evangelism. 
There's an old story of a woman who came up to the famous evangelist D.L. Moody, and she said to him, I don't like the way you do evangelism. Now, he asked her how she did evangelism, and when she answered that she didn't, he replied, I like the way I do evangelism better than the way you don't do evangelism. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> In this current state of evangelism, it's, it's, it's today that I feel like on Pentecost Sunday, Jesus is asking all of us here today, can I get a witness? My goal today is to connect the what of Pentecost to the why of Pentecost. And when we understand the purpose of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, I believe that will ignite our hearts to desire the power of the Holy Spirit. My big idea today is very simple. Pentecostal power is essential to being a witness for Jesus. And the texts I'll be working out of today are in Acts chapters 1 and 2. And these chapters give us a, a picture of what supernatural Holy Spirit-filled community looks like. And there are two main things that I want, to, want you to take away from today's message. First, you're going to hear a reminder about your call to be a witness. So takeaway number one is that you would answer your call. And takeaway number two is simple, that you would receive power to answer your call. Now, let me take a moment to set some context as we get started. The book of Acts is written by the gospel writer, Luke, and is considered volume two of a historical account of the ministry of Jesus. And right in the first verse of the book of Acts, he references volume one with the statement, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So the book of Acts then can be considered a record of what Jesus continued to do and teach through the apostles empowered by the Holy Spirit. Let's start with the call to witness, Acts 1, verses 4 through 8. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witness in, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, this is the first of some 60 references to Jerusalem in the book of Acts. And there is a special emphasis on Jerusalem. It's where the temple resides. It's where Jesus was crucified. It's where he was resurrected. And it's here. In Jerusalem, that Jesus instructs his disciples to wait. But Jesus here in verses 4 and 5 connects the promise of the Father to the prophecy of John the Baptist of the coming baptism that will be fulfilled in just a, just a matter of days. Now, in verse, here, verse 8 here, Jesus makes it clear that the purpose of the power is to be his witnesses. The phrase, you will receive, is directly connected to the phrase, you will be. And Jesus is here passing the baton to the disciples to continue the original mandate given to the nation of Israel to be his witnesses, to testify to the truth of the living God. Isaiah 43.10 says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. In the New Testament, it starts here in Jerusalem and expands outward from there to all people groups and to all nations. It's an ever-expanding witness. I think we can all agree that sometimes, though, it's hard to be a witness. 
it's hard to testify to the truth. As I prepared for this message, I was researching the topic of the most famous stories of eyewitness testimony, and I came across the story of Moses Wright. Moses Wright was born April 9, 1892 in rural Mississippi. He was a, a sharecropper and a country circuit preacher for the Church of God in Christ, and he was the father of 12 children. By 1955, Moses and his family had moved to the small town of Money, which is in northwest Mississippi, where they lived on a lonely, isolated road called Dark Fear Road, which got its name from the many lynchings that took place there. In the summer of 55, Moses Wright returned home from a trip to Chicago, and he brought with him his 14-year-old nephew, Emmett Till, for a summer visit. On August 24th, Emmett was in town with his cousins and friends, and they went to Bryant's grocery store, and what seemed like an innocent joke turned deadly. As Miss Bryant was leaving the store, Emmett Till whistled at her to get a laugh from his buddies. He didn't realize that he had violated an unwritten social taboo between whites and blacks in the Jim Crow South. Mrs. Bryant would tell her husband that Emmett had made a sexually suggestive remark to her, that he had grabbed her by the waist, and that he had let loose a wolf whistle. Uh, She would repeat these claims in court, but years later recant them. Three nights later, on August 27th, Moses Wright realized the danger at 2 o'clock in the morning when he was awakened by a voice outside of his cabin shouting, Preacher! Preacher! As Moses Wright was going to the door, the voice went on, I'm Mr. Bryant. I've come for the boy that did the talking at money. Roy Bryant and his half-brother John Millam stormed into the house, awakened Emmett Till, and abducted him, never to be seen alive again. One week later, Moses Wright went out to the muddy Tallahatchie River and was shown a body lying face down in a boat with its head smashed in. A deputy turned it over, and Moses Wright saw that it was his nephew, Emmett Till. Bryant and Milam were arrested the next day, and Moses Wright sent his family away and stayed isolated in the cabin sleeping with his rifle until the time of the trial. Now, in September, Moses Wright was called to the stand to testify and was asked to point out the men who'd abducted his nephew. In the face of the full wrath of Jim Crow culture and with the eyes of the nation upon him, Moses Wright stood up, thrust out his finger, looked and said, there he is. And he turned and said, and there's Mr. Bryant. Despite overwhelming evidence, Bryant and Millam were acquitted of the charges for the death of Emmett Till. This incredible miscarriage of justice in that Tallahatchie court in fall of 1955 was actually the spark that set off the civil rights movement. Shortly after, Rosa Parks would refuse to give up her seat on a public bus in Alabama. And later in life, she would say, looking back on those years, I thought about Emmett Till and I just couldn't go to the back. You see, it takes courage and passion to be a witness and to testify about the truth. For Moses Wright, it cost him everything, and it almost cost him his life. Now, we're living in a time where the passion for evangelism is on the decline, especially among the younger generation. According to research by Barna, almost half of millennials, 47%, believe that it's actually wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in order to convert them. Now, one of the reasons for our diminished evangelism is the fear of offending people, right? It's that fear of man. It's that fear of looking foolish 
that has crippled our witness and has locked up our evangelism. Now, the Great Commission makes to make disciples of all nations is not optional for any of us. You know, in, in Mission Impossible, there's that famous line that we can all recite, Kevin, your mission, should you to accept it, should you to choose to accept it, is but too many of us are not accepting our mission. But once we embrace the call to witness, we need the power to witness. Acts 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enable them. Just a a quick side note here about the word Pentecost. It comes from the Greek expression Pentecosta Himera, which means 50th day. But Christians didn't invent uh, invent that phrase 50th day. Rather, they borrowed it from Greek-speaking Jews who used the phrase to refer to a Jewish holiday. This was actually known as the Festival of Weeks. Uh, And you can find this uh, in Leviticus 23.16. Now, the first thing that jumps out from this passage in Acts 2 in verse 1 is that they were all together in one place. Now, you've heard it many times here at New Life that we believe that whatever God builds, he builds through relationships. Now, in Act, it's in Acts 2.1. It's from a position of gathered community that Luke records that, the, that the how, at first the house was filled with the presence of God. Suddenly, like the, a blowing violent wind. About a, about a month ago, I don't know if you remember this, there was a tornado that came through the Oldham County. It actually went through our backyard. Becky actually saw it. And I was actually in a shower when that was going. And they talk about, the, I know, talk about timing, right? Gosh. <laughs> but they talk about the sound of a tornado, and, it, and it's, it's, it's a violent shaking like a train is coming through the house. And that's totally true. That's what I experienced. Uh, In Scripture, wind and fire often accompany and symbolize the presence of God. Now, I don't have time to cover all these Scriptures, so I just give them to you for some homework. John 3, 8 talks about the Holy Spirit as wind. In Exodus 19, on Mount Sinai, the Lord descends in fire. In Exodus 40, 38, in the tabernacle, it says there was fire by night. Uh, Also in the temple, 2 Chronicles 7, 1, fire came down from heaven. So, Wind and fire is common uh, in the Old Testament. And many of Luke's readers would have quickly identified these Old Testament references uh, to God. The presence of God is represented in fire. Now, the text says next that after the house was filled, that the Holy Spirit then came to rest on the disciples and then filled the disciples so that they began to speak in tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So here at this point, we have the demonstration of the promise and the prophecy fulfilled. This is the power of God manifested. Uh, New Life, we embrace the full move of the Holy Spirit in both the church and in the life of the believer. And this is always the topic at our Discovering New Life membership class that generates the most conversation. So I always say, all right, let's block out a good 45 minutes just for this topic because it's, 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 it's people are, are curious. Um, and, and we believe that, that the Scripture teaches that there is a secondary work of grace that is available to followers of Christ. 
And speaking in tongues or speaking in a heavenly language is just one of the manifestations of God's power. I want to be very clear about something. We talk about this in the class, and that is we believe that the Bible says if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you have received the Holy Spirit. Full stop. Okay? And, and there's several scriptures here that, that talk about 1 Corinthians 3.16, John 3.3, 3, Titus 3.5, that talk about the Spirit of God indwelling the believer of Jesus. You are not sub-Christian. And your faith is not defective if you have not experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, again, though, the purpose of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts is for our calling as witnesses. I remember one afternoon in the spring of the year 2000, I had been a Christian for all of about four months. And I had a phone call with someone that I, I deeply cared about. In that phone call, that conversation, I, I rank it as one of the worst of my entire life. It was heartbreaking. It was sad. It was just sorrowful. I don't know how else to say that. And, and so I just hung up the phone, and I, I just needed some kind of refreshment. So I got in the shower, and as I got in the shower, I just leaned against the wall. I know, the shower again, right? Sorry. <laughs> I didn't think about that. Oh. So, so I'm in the shower, heartbroken, and leaning up against the wall on the tile, just weeping, sobbing, like when your heart's broken. And then all of a sudden, there's this light that fills the bathroom, and a heat, and a unexpressible joy. I don't know how to explain it. And then I just started laughing, laughing uncontrollably, belly laughing. It, this went on for like 10 minutes. I was overwhelmed with joy and laughter. In that moment, I didn't understand what was happening, but it's clear looking back that the Holy Spirit came upon me in such an unmistakable way to take away the intense sadness that I was feeling at that moment. See, looking back, I consider that the first time I was baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit. And it was then that the manifest, revealed power of God began to set me free from the depths of depression. Like the first disciples, the Holy Spirit then enabled me to keep on going on the mission and, and be a witness is the best I knew how at four months old as a Christian. R.A. Torrey in his book, The Holy Spirit, Who He Is and What He Does, says, quote, as we witness, whether in public preaching or in the ministry of personal work, we can only do this if we are filled again and again with his glorious power for each new emergency of Christian service. I love that phrase. Can I ask you a question, though? When was the last emergency of Christian service you faced? See, one of the challenges that we face is that we're comfortable. And, and let's be honest, for many of us to live much of the American Christian life, to come to church, to come to life group, to go to all of our conferences, we don't really need the power of God to do that. But it's when we're out there, the other six days of the week, storming the gates of hell, that we need the power of God. 
So we've been called to witness in the power of the Holy Spirit to share the message of witnesses. Acts, 20, Acts 2, 36-39. Therefore, let all Israel be, sure, be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and, all, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And this passage is the culmination of Peter's speech where he draws on the Old Testament scriptures of Joel 2, Psalm 16, and Psalm 110 as evidence that this outpouring of the Holy Spirit and Jesus' death and resurrection as Lord and Messiah are the fulfillment of prophecy. In other words, this that you are seeing, yeah, that's what you heard about. Well, Peter declares the gospel, and then he calls for a response. He calls for repentance. He calls them to radically change the direction of their lives. Now, you will often hear that our mission is to make disciples and not converts, and that's true. There's been a lot of debate over the, year, over the years about the value uh, and the long-term fruit of large evangelistic events. Large numbers of people saying the sinner's prayer at a festival hasn't always translated to uh, mature believers and transformed lives. In the recent years, it seems like God has been awakening to the church the need to have a, a both-and mentality related to our mission and to focus on holistic discipleship. But let's be clear. The both and of the kingdom mission starts with the primacy of evangelism. It starts with the proclamation of the good news. And the point of evangelism is to set up an introduction. It's to set up an encounter with Jesus. Danny Lehman, in Discipling the Nations, One Disciple at a Time, he points out that Jesus' last command, the Great Commission in Matthew 28, is well known. But he reminds us that maybe we need to look at the first thing Jesus commanded us to do. Mark 1.14, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, just like Jesus, we are called to proclaim the gospel and call people to repentance. Jesus wasn't shy. Peter wasn't shy. And that's our model. St. Francis was an Italian Catholic friar, deacon, and preacher who lived in the late 1100s, early 1200s, and is the founder of the Franciscan order. He's credited with the phrase, preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. Now, this quote has often been used to encourage Christians to put their faith into action. And this phrase has good intention behind it, to let our lives shine as a demonstration to point to who Jesus is. That is a biblical truth, but it's incomplete. And it turns out it's highly unlikely that St. Francis ever said that. An article titled Misquoting St. Francis notes that no biography written within the first 200 years of his death contains a saying. In fact, Francis was known as much for his preaching as, as much as for his lifestyle. Mark Galley wrote a biography of Francis where he explains that Francis 
was quite the preacher, actually more along the lines of a Jonathan Edwards or a Billy Sunday. Uh, St. Francis apparently spent a great time, uh, a great deal of time using his words when he preached, sometimes preaching up to five times a day, often outdoors. He was sometimes so animated, according to the book, that he, in his delivery, his feet moved as if he were dancing. Now, let's not fall into the false either-or trap where we pit living the gospel against proclaiming the gospel. Romans ten thirteen says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? And there are some important things to note about this passage. First, Paul uses the word preach, which is almost always interpreted as let's get someone to come to church so the preacher can share the gospel with them. The original meaning of the word with the literal, literal translation from the Greek is to speak or to proclaim with the hopes of persuading someone. And speaking is something we can all do. They can't believe unless they hear, and they can't hear unless someone tells them. See, as Christians, we are the sent ones. And notice the urgency and the passion in the following verse, 2 Corinthians five eighteen. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We have been entrusted with this message of reconciliation, and we have a responsibility to pass on what we have received. As ambassadors, the text says, uh, we are called, God is calling to the lost, making his appeal through us. It's an amazing opportunity. Well, let me ask you a question. I want you to be honest. Do you see evangelism as something you have to do or something you get to do? Is sharing Jesus your duty or your delight? Your answer to that question will dramatically impact your witness. Penn Gillette first rose to fame as half of the magic duo Penn and Teller. Penn is the big guy who talks. Lately, though, he's been in the spotlight as a passionate uh, advocate for atheism, among other things. <clears throat> a few years ago, Gillette recorded a short video of someone who came to talk to him after one of his magic shows. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, he said that the guy who spoke to him was about his age, and he was actually a guy who had been in the, the magic show the night before. The man came up to Gillette and complimented him on the show, and then he says, I brought this for you. And the man held up a, a small book. It was a pocket version of the New Testament and Psalms. This is what Gillette said. He was kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me, and then he gave me this Bible. Listen to this. He says, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. 
if you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that the truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. Can I get a witness? Now, I want you to let this phrase sink in. How much do you have to hate someone to not proselytize? The point I'm trying to make is eventually, sometimes after years of investing in loving people unconditionally, right, in letting your light shine and being an example, praying passionately, and maybe even seeing God move in power, at some point you actually need to use words and share the gospel message. Listen, I know it's hard. And there is spiritual conflict and it is uncomfortable. That's why we need the power. And in that moment, in that conversation, God's power is available for you to draw on. The Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. And he'll also tell you when to shut your mouth and when to listen. For some time, God has been calling me to re-engage with my family on my father's side. After he passed away in 1988, there had been little to no contact. So this past uh, winter, before Christmas, I called my uncle to reconnect and try to rekindle the relationship. And we had dinner one night. And then a couple weeks later, I went over to his house just to visit with him, just, just to hang out. I had no agenda. And the next thing I know, he's asking me questions about life, about faith, about the church, which led to the longest and the most challenging conversation about the faith I've ever had. We talked for three and a half hours, and we would have kept going if I didn't have to go get my kids. Now listen, it got intense, to say the least. And as I shared what happened with Tim and Phil, I, I broke down because I felt like maybe, maybe I didn't share my faith with gentleness and respect, that maybe I damaged the relationship. God knows I could have done things better that night, but at the end of the day, that's what love does. Love dictates that we take the risk because we care about them. And always remember that you are dealing with a person made in the image of God with incredible worth, value, and dignity. Witnessing is personal. It's not a project. And we hadn't spoken much since then, but I called him this week. Took another risk. And it went great. It was great to talk to him. He even seemed interested in the hot dogs and homework outreach. See, with God, all things are possible. We are called to be witnesses. We need the power to witness. We have a message to witness, which leads to my last point, the fruit of witness. Acts 2.41, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. There is a simple 
powerful truth in this short verse. It's this. It's when you lift up Jesus, there will always be someone who responds. Not everyone will respond, and that's okay. See, those who accepted Peter's message are the ones who put their hope and they put their trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We are not responsible for people's decisions, but we are responsible to share the good news. My last story, and I'll close. <clears throat> I used this illustration a few years ago, so, but I, so I couldn't find a better one, so please bear with me. John Harper was pastor of Walworth Road Baptist Church in London, who was well known for his evangelistic preaching. <clears throat> in 1912, Reverend Harper received an invitation to speak at the Moody Church in Chicago. And on April 11th, 1912, John Harper, who was a widower, took his sister and his six-year-old daughter and boarded the Titanic for the voyage to America. On the evening of April 14th, as passengers danced in the ballroom and tried their hands at the card table, John Harper has put his daughter to bed and read her his devotions as he does every night. At 11.40 p.m., the Titanic struck an iceberg. Harper awakened his daughter, picked her up, wrapped her in her blanket before carrying her up to the deck. Then he kissed her goodbye and he handed her and his sister to a crewman who put him on a lifeboat. Harper knew he would never see his daughter again. His daughter would be an orphan at six years of age. Harper then gave his life jacket to a fellow passenger saying, you need it more than I do. From one survivor, we learn he was calling out women and children and unsaved people into the lifeboats. Survivors reported seeing him on the upper deck on his knees, surrounded by terrified passengers, praying for their salvation. <clears throat> At 2.40 a.m., the Titanic disappeared beneath the North Atlantic, leaving over a thousand people, including Harper, fighting for their lives in the icy water. Now, he managed to find a piece of wreckage floating onto him, and quickly he swam to every person he could find, urging them to put their faith in Jesus Christ. In a prayer meeting years later in Hamilton, Ontario, a young Scotsman stood up and told in tears the unusual story of how he was converted. He said he was on the Titanic the night it struck the iceberg, and he had clung to a piece of floating debris also in the freezing waters. Suddenly, he said, a wave brought a man near, John Harper. He too was holding a piece of wreckage. He called out, man, are you saved? No, I'm not, I replied. He shouted back, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The waves bore Harper away, but a little later he was washed back beside me again. Are you saved now? He called out. No, I answered. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Then losing his hold on the wood, Harper sank. And there, alone in the night with two miles of water under me, I trusted Christ as my Savior. I am John Harper's last convert. Now, I'm wrecked every time I read this story and convicted that my passion for winning people to Jesus has gotten so cold.
If we believe this book, then we must understand that there are family, friends, and neighbors who are going to die and they're going to spend eternity separated from God and from everything good and beautiful. There are people in your life who are drowning and they desperately need what you have. Will you give them your life jacket? This is serious, folks. It's getting late. You have been placed here for such a time as this, and there are not enough pastors, preachers, or evangelists in the world to do this task. That's what Ephesians 4 is all about. It's our job to equip you to do the work of ministry and to multiply your impact of being a witness for Jesus. Please, don't tell me you have time when the average person spends over four hours a day on their phone. Stop it. That's right, modern people spend almost a quarter of their waking hours on their mobile device. And according to one study, almost half the time, two hours, is spent on social media. I want you to feel the weight of these statistics because God is trying to get our attention. He's saying, wake up, church. Wake up. God is pleading with you at this very moment to reach the lost, share the gospel, and make disciples. But listen, this is the point of Pentecost. We can't do that in our own strength. Maybe you don't want to offend people and the fear of what people think has paralyzed you. If so, there's Pentecostal power available to you. Maybe you're carrying an offense and you've been crippled by years of unforgiveness. If so, there's Pentecostal power available to you. Or maybe you've just been trying to live the Christian life on your own and you feel like you're running on your treadmill and you're just wondering, is Christianity even worth it? If that's you today, there's Pentecostal power available to you. One of the last references to witness in the Bible is Revelation 1.5. It says, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. <clears throat> Jesus is faithful. He will never, never let you down. He's the firstborn of the dead. He was crucified for your sins and mine, and he was resurrected again, victorious over death. And if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, he's calling you to repent. He's calling you to change your direction and to put your trust in him. And when you do, you will receive the forgiveness of your sins and eternal life. When questioned by Pontius Pilate about his identity, this is how Jesus responded. John 18, 37. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Can you hear his voice today? 
Jesus entrusted his mission to 12 unlikely disciples to take the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's our heritage. We too have been entrusted with the mission to make disciples in all the world. And right here in Louisville, Kentucky. Let's finish the mission. See, remember the phrase, can I get a witness, is all about call and response. But please, don't hear that as a call from the preacher this morning. Jesus himself is calling to each one of you personally. And he's asking you, can I get a witness?